bigger is not always better, but if you take advantage of what there is out there and the options that you get because of a bigger, more diverse set of people and opportunities that you can thrive individually and with you know a small group of people around you uh, in big places, you have to find your you know your team, your function, and sort of your identity within these big companies because you can get lost if you don't. Uh, I think figure that out. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader Andy Shi, the VP of Nike Direct Stores and Digital Commerce for Asia Pacific and Latin America. Yeah, what I love about any conversation with Andy is kind of his human perspective on kind of making these massive, amazing brands like Nike or big countries like China, just making them smaller. It's a great conversation. Yeah. And he's, he's very intentional about the, the things that he does. Uh, a quick bio on Andy. Like me, Andy graduated from the Ohio State University with a degree in computer science and engineering. After graduating, he joined Procter & Gamble, working in beauty care, leading P&G's digital marketing programs, business analytics, commercial tech innovation programs, Working across brands like Pantene, Clairol, Olay, CoverGirl, Secret, Head & Shoulders, and more. After that, Andy then joined Nike in Portland, uh, where he started on the digital commerce team, rising through the ranks, uh, the digital ranks, I suppose. Uh, he then spent uh, nearly five years in Shanghai, leading Nike's digital commerce efforts for greater China, ultimately becoming VP and general manager for the company's digital commerce efforts. And he's now the VP of Nike Direct Stores and Digital Commerce for Asia, Pacific, and Latin America. And all around a pretty amazing guy. Oh, you're both named Andrew. So mm -hmm. I guess that works. Yeah. You know what I love about you, Ohio State people? You feel the need to say the. I went to the University of Alabama, and you don't hear me saying the University of Alabama. Well, I mean, first of all, it's actually in the title. It's a land-grant state, so it is the Ohio State University. And also, if we don't say it, they take away our degrees. <laughs> I think. I think. I assume that's why we all say it. But it's the football players started saying it, and we want to be cool like the football players, so we started saying it. That sounds like a football inferiority complex to me. <laughs> well, I mean, when you have such a great football team, you want to aspire to be like them. I actually don't care about college football. But can I reveal coming that? From, coming from <laughs> Alabama, yeah. Uh, it's easier for you to say that, I guess. Well, for our listeners who might have listened to the last episode with Julia Google, I revealed that I'm a fake sports fan. I care more about my Star Wars and Star Trek. That's true. And that is something that uh, Andy and I talked about a little bit. He, he talked about uh, watching Star Trek as a way to kind of uh, disengage and to, to relax a little bit. So you Star Wars or Star Trek? I'm an equal opportunity nerd. I'll throw in, you know, Doctor Who, uh, The Expanse, and Battlestar Galactica for good. I, the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek is, and the whole purpose of this podcast was for me to get to this moment, um, yes. Star, Star Wars is mythology. Um, you know, it's the hero's journey. Star Trek is a commentary on our society. It's about the ultimate future. What about you? Are, are you into either one of them? I am more of a Star Wars fan than Star Trek. Uh, my Star Wars character, I did a personality assessment. I'm sure that was very scientific online. I am R2-D2 or R-Drew-D-Drew, I think. It's <laughs> the most accurate kind of translation. Um, but no, I'm big into Star Wars. I'm Actually, I think of all of them that you mentioned, right? You said Battlestar Galactica, uh, The Expanse. I think I'm a biggest, the biggest fan of Doctor Who. Well, because you look like David Tennant. You could be <laughs> one of the doctors. <laughs> That's actually the reason why I started watching Doctor Who was because I'm a self-proclaimed nerd. And then people said I started looking like him. And I was like, all right, I got to see what this is about. And it is such, I mean, some episodes are super wacky, but it's such, the Christmas specials are some of the best written TV out there, I think, at least That's, in the sci-fi universe. I, I, the BBC and their art of Christmas specials are amazing. But look, we've uh, probably spent two minutes talking about football and science fiction. Here's where Andy Shea is cooler. First, in a meeting, he would have made a shift gears. 
But he's also cool. He did, I, I don't know if most people know this. Andy was in a band when he was at PNG. That I think is is super cool. Not like because I don't. It wasn't like a marching band. I was in marching band in high school. That's <laughs> not cool. Not, not known as like super cool, but being in a real legit band that is, uh, you know, super cool. And, and Andy in general is just like I said. He's a very intentional person. You know, we in the interview we cover a number of different topics. The you know the the reason for for going to Nike. Why you know take the family to China? What do you learn in a global role? How do you survive at a big place? Right. He went to a big university at Ohio State. He works at big worked at big companies. You know, P and G, Nike, and even going to big cities and big countries. Right. So you know, being in in Shanghai and in China, and we talk about how do you make a big place like that feel smaller. He also talks about his very intentional approach to leadership and what he's trying to do with his team members. So it's it's a fantastic conversation from someone who is in the thick of things right now in the sense of really leading teams, really doing some great work and being able to share his insights and wisdom about that. You know, he was one of my favorite people to work with when I was at the company. He's just done amazing things. I can't wait for you guys to hear Drew's conversation with Andy. Yeah. So let's uh, jump right in. Some may already know your professional story. You graduated from The Ohio State University, degree in computer science and engineering, started out at PNG after you graduated, had a few different roles there. Then you moved to Oregon to, to work with Nike, then spent some time in China, and now back in Oregon uh, with still with, with Nike. And so I'm curious, first of all, you know, growing up in Ohio and Bowling Green. Is this kind of the career you imagined? Is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was this kind of in the plans for you? You know, it's funny. Uh, it's definitely not something I would have imagined growing up in a small town in, in Ohio. My dad, uh, an immigrant from China, he was a professor at the university, BGSU, there in the, you know, the city of Bowling Green. And you know, he always talked about education. And I think he probably wanted us in his dream to be a, a, a doctor, but the engineering path was actually the second uh, path. And so I, I grew up, you know, having a lot of interest in, in, in technology and, and computers. And that's why, you know, like you, I, I ended up at Ohio State University and studied computer science and engineering, thinking I was going to be more on the pure technology engineering side of it. And obviously through different twists and turns in my career, I ended up on a different path into the world of marketing and now into the world of general management. And I love it, but I would have never guessed that I would have been in this type of business role uh, when I was growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, yeah, so as you kind of alluded to, so I also went to Ohio State, also degree in computer science and engineering. And I remember for me growing up, like being infatuated with the first computer that we got as a family. Is that the same for you? Like, how did you know why engineering over potentially being a doctor? What was yeah. it about technology that you were drawn to? Absolutely. Maybe similar stories in some ways, but uh, I was in, I think it was in the late grade school and my dad bought uh, a, a computer from Radio Shack called a TRS-80. I remember it had like a 8K of memory and we thought that's amazing. Uh, and it, it was the most basic thing compared to anything we have today, but it was for us an amazing new world of technology because unlike sort of the, at the time people were playing the Atari 2600 video games, this was mm -hmm. sort of a computer system that you could program basic. Uh, you could play some cartridge games and things like that. And what my brother and I did was we would, uh, we would basically, we, we would have these magazines, these computing magazines, which gave you ideas on, mini games that you could create. And so we started dabbling with those. We even started, you know, trying to create our fun, cheesy little um, if then text based <laughs> adventure games. And so we were kind of like computer nerds, basically, when uh, computers were just getting, you know, rolled out into families. And so for me, that was my first touch point with technology and thinking this is so cool. Like imagine that this little box can do all that. And who would have known, you know, 30 plus years later, what technology uh, could do. Yeah, absolutely. And and so what was what was around the decision to go to Ohio State? Now I know, you know, growing up in Ohio, everyone knows of Ohio State. They know plenty of people a lot of times at least that went to Ohio State. Why Ohio State versus say BGSU where uh your dad had taught or, you know, some other place? What was it about, you know, the big campus of Ohio State that drew you there? Well, honestly, it's uh, it's not where I originally also expected I would have gone growing up when I was younger. And, you know, my, my, my family all went, my sister, brother, both older than me and went out of state for 
uh, university. And when I was applying to uh, different colleges in high school, I applied to, I think, nine or 10 different places all. And the only one in Ohio was Ohio State University. And I, I didn't expect to go there. But when I toured the campus, uh, I thought it had a great energy. I also, um, you know, was fortunate enough to get a scholarship, a full ride scholarship, mm-hmm. and that was super attractive at the time versus potentially having either myself or my parents take out loans. Uh, and then the other thing was a little bit of insight from my older brother. He was at Cornell and he was in computer science and engineering, and I actually was also accepted. Uh, into Cornell in computer science as well. And I could have joined him there, which would have been in some ways an amazing experience to be at the same university with my brother. But he kind of warned me and he said like, wow, we work so hard here. We study all the time and the competition is really fierce. And uh, not that I couldn't, you know, also enter into that, but it was a little bit of a a warning on this. Be careful what you get into because when you come here, it's not going to be, you know, maybe the balance if you want a little bit of that you know, other part of college life, you're going to maybe be a little bit over indexed on the on the working and studying piece of it. And so that, to me, knowing that my brother, who I, I felt was actually better than me, even uh, at that computer engineering world was 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 talking about how challenging it was, made me realize that could be not the situation that is perfect for me. Uh, and so thinking that I wanted to go to a more balanced place in Ohio mm-hmm. State, I felt had that a great engineering program, but also I think clearly, you know, a lot of activities, extracurricular opportunities and amazing sports uh, that helped me make my decision actually to go to Ohio State, those factors. Yeah, oh, that's great. And I, I definitely want to talk a little bit later about this idea of balance, because I think that that's a, a core component, and at least from, you know, conversations that we've had in the past or some of the programs that I know that you've helped have run that is, is part of what you talk about when it comes to career as well, which I, I do want to talk about. So with, with Ohio State, did you like get into the culture? Would you say that you do bleed scarlet and gray? Are you like, uh, you know, a, a fan of them now? Are you saying OHIO to people as you pass them by all of that kind of stuff? You know, definitely still a super fan. It's the, it's the sports team I follow the most when it comes to both football and basketball more than any professional sports. And even working at Nike, uh, it's still my favorite team. And you know, root for them for sure. Part of it is growing up in Ohio, but going there when you experience, you know, at the time going to St. John's Arena for basketball games before they had shot in Steen Center, and then obviously the shoe uh, for the huge crowds of, you know, the the Saturday football games, there's nothing like it. And uh, you definitely feel a part of that uh, culture. And, you know, I was also fortunate enough at Ohio State to be part of a service group called Ohio Staters, uh, which was all about service projects for and around the university. And so that was another uh, group that helped sort of build the spirit of being a Buckeye. And mm-hmm. so definitely in the blood, so to speak. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it definitely is for for me as well. I, I do make a point to make sure that for the most part, I say the Ohio State University, much to the yes. chagrin of audiences <laughs> and other people listening, but yes. you got to put it out there. But so I'm Absolutely. curious because, you know, this is something that seems true kind of throughout your career. So Ohio State, huge campus, 50,000 people. Procter & Gamble, huge company, you know, thousands upon thousands of, of uh, people all around the world. Nike, huge company as well. Have you, have you always been drawn to bigger organizations? And, and how do you, like, was it through kind of getting involved in some of these other places? How do you make a place that's so big feel smaller in a sense or carve out your own world? It seems like it could be easy to get lost in the shuffle with so many people. Yeah, I think, you know, my experience at the Ohio State University for sure shaped some of, I think, the later parts of my career going to such a big university. You know, you have to find your own way, so to speak. No one is, you know, out there holding your hand. And so you have to find your community, your friends and uh, the activities and and the priorities that you're going to, you know, take on yourself. and, and, And then you get comfortable that, you know, there are a lot of amazing opportunities at big colleges or big companies give you because they have, you know, a bigger set of jobs or roles or or bigger footprint from a, you know, location standpoint. And so I think Ohio State taught me that bigger is not always better, but if you take advantage of what there is out there and the options that you get because of a bigger, more diverse set of people and opportunities that you can thrive individually and with, you know, a small group of people around you uh, in big places. And so then I went to P&G, as you said afterwards, which is even bigger, you know, 100,000 plus employees during the time I was there. And similar story, you know, you, you have to find your, you know, your team, your function and sort of your identity within 
these big companies because you can get lost if you don't, uh, I think, figure that out. And, and being comfortable with that is part of the reason, you know, I, I think starting from Ohio State, then to P&G Nike, that I have been, you know, I think comfortable in the size of these companies. And there's some, some level of safety in there, but there's also just a lot of variety and diversity as well. Yeah, well, and I think, like you said, carving your own experience from that becomes valuable, which I think is, is really interesting because what was your first role at P&G? My first role was I was a uh, systems analyst in the technical support group for our sales team. And so we were essentially a application support and call center, and we helped to manage uh, a call center that answered phone calls and questions from our sales team out in the field about all the apps and their, their laptops and technology that they use, which at the time, laptops were very new, <laughs> very expensive, and prone to issues. Okay. And so, yeah, that, that is kind of what you, I, I would expect that's similar to kind of my first job, at least as a systems analyst at, at PNG. That's very different than getting into marketing. And I know that you were pretty kind of like conscious or strategic about shifting into digital marketing before it was ever a thing. And actually part of one of the first kind of digital ABMs at PNG. What was, why go that route? Were you like always secretly kind of drawn to marketing and you wanted to go there? Were you like, oh, this is something that is, you know, this is going to be the future and people just haven't realized it yet. What was going into that decision to pivot into what was, what's kind of different, a different path, like you said, than what you would expect with a CSME degree? Yeah, I think it comes down to like small steps in different places leading up to that. You know, I coming out of, you know, college and having an engineering degree, I had done internships at IBM and, and AT&T and they were coding internships working on, you know, different systems there uh, and, and databases. And I, I began to realize like that was not the game I wanted to play for from a long-term career standpoint. I could not imagine being in an office, you know, working on a computer all by myself or, you know, just coding and doing that type of work. And so that those internships taught me that even though I love technology. And so when I chose PNG, part of it was, you know, great brands, great company, but another piece of it was the, the, I, the sell that PNG is a company. If you can't stay there for a long time, you can still definitely stay there, learn, train with the best and be connected more to the business. And even though my first job was, you know, a bit removed from the business as part of a, uh, you know, technology support group, you did, you did get a glimpse of that as you worked with the sales teams and how they sold into their different accounts. And I knew that I wanted to get closer and closer to the business. And it was a really fortunate, just a bit of luck, right place, right time for the sort of the digital ABM opportunity. And, you know, when they first launched the, I guess the first generation of those, I, I, I literally met, I think it was the first one. His name was Tim Cup, another great uh, former PNG as well. And I, I was inspired to hear like how he was taking technology and kind of wowing uh, the teams in, in beauty care and, and hair care with what we could be doing to connect with consumers through websites. And, you know, obviously things have advanced so much since then, but it was breakthrough, right? In the way that we were, we were now talking to these people one-on-one, you know, through email website versus the old traditional media world. And so that to me was such an exciting shift that I, I had a feeling, I didn't realize where it was going, but I had a feeling that the future was going to have a lot of growth in that area. Yeah. And so how did you go? Was it then, you know, a manager coming to you and saying, Hey, do you want to do this? And you're like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Or was it more of like, Oh, what Tim is doing sounds really fascinating. Like, how do I do it? Like, what, how did that, you know, initial thought become then the opportunity ultimately, and then the role? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how networks work. I had a, a great manager at the time I had moved to a second role. Uh, at PNG in the the healthcare research center at the time, that's what it was called, and we were supporting the server operations and and again, uh, some of the infrastructure and 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 call center support for the the team, the healthcare research team in that location. And uh, her name was Lisa Oldham. She had a husband that worked at PNG named Kent Oldham, and he was actually connected to and managing uh, uh, some of the teams. And so through networks, I learned about the role. I talked to different people. I talked to Kent, and then I obviously Tim, as I mentioned, others and. I got really excited about it. And that network helped me to eventually talk to one of the hiring managers, uh, John Stickway at the time. And he was looking for a new hair care, you know, a digital ABM. And I was very fortunate through that network and meeting different people that uh, I was offered that role. And that was kind of the the big jump into a, a completely different world. And, you know, from that point on, obviously my career trajectory changed into a, a, a different 
sort of trajectory of combination of technology and business uh, that that I've really loved since then. Yeah, and I think I mean you speak to this, the the importance of right that that network. I think uh, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics estimates that like seventy percent of jobs are found through networking, and I think it's even true of internal things. Sometimes people yeah. think of like external jobs, but even your next internal role may come from the networks and the relationships that you're, you're building over time. And it sounds like, you know, that's the case. So you go through, you, you kind of pivot into digital marketing, you learn more about it, you're at PNG for a while, and then Nike comes into the, the picture. What, what went into the decision of, because I know some people are like, okay, how do you know if it's, you know, your time to maybe move on to, to somewhere else? Was it a, were you looking for something? Did it kind of come to you? What was the process for being like, all right, I'm going to leave uh, this part of the country and go to the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, no, it's uh, it comes down to, I think for my wife and I at the time, uh, and we had two very small children when we made that decision, was it's a com- it was a combination of life goals and then career goals. And although we, my wife and I, my wife actually was a P&G employee too. We joined P&G within three months of each other coming both from the Ohio State University. Uh, and and you, did you know each other then? We did. We, we okay. actually knew each other. We were part of the same service organization. We didn't date in college, but we ended up getting married once we uh, started dating when we were both at P&G. And you know, she was having a, str- a good career at P&G. We both loved the company, but at the time, you know, this was... 2008. And, you know, we were in a little bit of a moving into that little bit of an economic downturn at the time. And PNG was suffering a little bit. It wasn't uh, necessarily at the bottom, but we could see challenges in the size and the growth model of the company. And so even though we loved the people and the team so much, there was a part of me that felt like PNG was not the maybe the growth company that it was in, you know, 12 and a half years ago, when I first joined PNG in the mid '90s, and so we 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 were a little concerned that the growth of PNG, uh, when you looked forward twenty plus years, was going to be slower than we hoped. Um, mm-hmm. And that was sort of the work career aspect. The other piece of it was very more on the life side. We had a chance at PNG to go to the to um, live in the East Coast where you are now, mm-hmm. you know, close to that in Stamford, Connecticut, as part of the Clarell acquisition. Uh, and that was an amazing career experience for me to be away from the mothership of Cincinnati and able to meet a team of people that were, again, highly talented, passionate, but they were an acquisition for PNG and just being able to, to live in that environment, meet different people, and then also be in a very different part of the world in, in the East Coast of the U.S. and out, right outside of New York City. And we, while we didn't necessarily love 100% of New York City, necessarily in the metro when you take into account traffic and cost of living, but we loved the fact that there was so much to do. Activities, great food, restaurants. Uh, there was more natural beauty within, you know, driving distance in different places. And we, we've kind of fell in love with the idea that you could live in a place that had, in our minds, a little bit more to offer uh, than maybe some cities in the Midwest. And so we came back to Cincinnati after that experience. And you know, we worked for PNG a few more years in Cincinnati. But when we came back to Cincinnati after living on the East Coast, our mindsets had changed. And I think this happens to a number of people. When you live in another place and you, you fall in love with at least parts of that, you want to get back to that. And so we had a feeling after we came back that Cincinnati was not necessarily the home, even though I, you know, I will always love Ohio, but it may not be the home for us for the next 30 plus years. And so those combination of factors, again, the balancing of personal, you know, life goals versus the, the, the potential career opportunities led me to start, you know, looking at different opportunities. And while I looked at a few, the Nike one was one of those that just became very obvious when, when the, the role uh, and the interview to go to the Pacific Northwest became sort of real. Uh, we fell in love on our visit to Portland with the, the Pacific Northwest. It was so beautiful. It was, you know, in a part of the, the U.S. that was, you know, a little bit more temperate in terms of climate and a great sort of growing city. And then the brand Nike obviously was one that many of us uh, love growing up. And, and that's not a company I would have ever thought of working at because being on the West Coast, I just didn't think I would ever get out there. Uh, but once I had that opportunity to, to, to drive digital and digital marketing at Nike, uh, it became a bit of a, you know, too good to be true opportunity that we couldn't turn down. Yeah, no, I think that that's great. Like you said, sometimes you 
look at a lot of different options, whether that is, you know, a potential career, whether that is a, a potential significant other or someone that you're like in the dating area, whether it is a apartment or a home, you sometimes look at them and there's there's one that maybe stands out that just feels kind of like that. That's how it was for me moving to New York with PNG was a media pot landing is like, oh, this is a place that I could see myself in for a while. And that was you know, 12 years ago at this point. And so, but I'm curious, I'm, I'm always curious from the decision-making factor. You said it was a, it was a mix of life goals and, and work goals or were these goals that like were articulated on a list? Are you like the type of family where you're like, okay, we have on the refrigerator, here's our, our life goals and work goals together. Was it conversation that you had and it was more delivered or was it more of just kind of in general through conversations and things that you like talked about like how did how did that become crystallized that a life goal of you know living somewhere outside of the midwest where these things were happening was something that you wanted yeah it's a little bit uh i think a combination we we have at, at various points in our lives my wife and i have written down sort of goals and and and, and both from a life and career perspective and for sure there were different inflection points uh, and and that was certainly one of those time periods coming back to Cincinnati after living on the East Coast where we had we, we began to think more about where we wanted to go next and uh, when we thought about those goals against the opportunities it was definitely one of those things where we knew based on what where we wanted to head long term that we we would probably need a change and we didn't know what that change was at the time but I but that dialogue for sure uh, some of it is just informal. You know, you're out at dinner and you're like, wow, you know, I really miss X, Y, Z and I wish we could get that. And we don't, you know, really have that easily accessible here. Uh, and, and what would that look like? And so I think, you know, it's, you know, like many things in life, there's no perfect science, but if you talk about it and you have an open relationship that will, uh, that will help. Yeah. And, and has family played a, uh, a big part in your career decisions, like kind of as you've gone through or has it been a balance of, has it been mostly what's best for my career? Has it been mostly what's best for my family or a combination of the two? You know, I think it has to be balanced. And and if, you know, everyone has a different, I think, definition of what is their level of balance. But for me, uh, I, it was, it would never be a hundred percent about career. And, you know, I think many of us have seen this in our careers. And while I, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with how my career path has been, progressing over the years. I've, I've definitely seen other people, you know, you see that all of us see those, some people like have these incredibly fast and uh, amazing career trajectories, but maybe they're moving around all the time, or maybe they have to be split from their family uh, for big chunks of time. And those were not sacrifices that I, I would have been willing to make uh, unless there were dire circumstances involved. And so many times, you know, for my wife and I, we, while career is definitely important, there are certain, you know, things around our personal life that we would not want to sacrifice, like being separated for a long time or moving constantly. And that even though we've moved uh, a fair number of times, it's generally within stable reasons, like within the same company moving and coming back or, uh, you know, not just changing companies and moving constantly. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you, you raise a great point. Well, one, that, you know, that it's going to be different for every person. Some people are, yeah, maybe they want a faster directory for whatever reason and, and going to pick that. Some that are more on the, the family side. And so was it similar factors that go into, because then you have another, you know, another big move of then moving to uh, Shanghai with Nike. Was that a similar thing of like you traveled there and suddenly wanted to be like, because that seems... I can see the connection between, okay, being out of Ohio and then going to, you know, Stanford and being like, okay, well, Portland can serve some of that. The moving to Shanghai seems different to me. So how did that come into play? Yeah, I think uh, part of it is, you know, my parents were both from China. And so while I grew up and was born in the U.S. as a, you know, Chinese American, I had always in the back of my mind thought, wow, it'd be really cool at some point if I could learn a little bit more about, you know, background of my family and or China and the culture or really Asia in general, Asia, you know, having kind of identifying as an Asian American growing up here in the U.S., you definitely have an affinity toward uh, others that go through that same journey. And you, you also think about your, the roots of your culture and where it comes from. So there was a, there was a personal aspect that I had always thought, even if I had stayed at PNG for my whole career, that it would have been great to work in Asia at some point. And uh, when you combine that with a, you know, a company that is willing to know, potentially relocate you for a good career opportunity and, and help bear the burden of the cost. It's uh, for me when I 
you know, had that opportunity. I had actually been communicating through our, you know, review processes at Nike that at some point I might be interested in working in China or Asia. I never thought it would come to fruition actually, but then suddenly one, you know, day my boss came to me and said, Hey, we're uh, looking at a shift in some of the people in, in China. Somebody's moved, wants to move to a new role out of the digital GM role in China. Would you be interested? And, and, you know, I, I never thought that actually that conversation was going to happen. And when it did, it was kind of a, an amazingly nice surprise. And, and then you go into a decision-making process of, Hey, actually, now that this is on the table, could we move to China? And that's where, you know, my wife and I talked about it. We thought about our kids situation and then we had to visit eventually to Shanghai. And through all that process, we decided it would be great from a career perspective, but also for the, for my kids to experience, you know, living in China and in another country, uh, as well as my wife and I being able to to live in in China and and experience that and and see different parts of Asia, and so we, you know, feel so fortunate that we had that opportunity. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was uh, certainly awesome. Yeah, and and I do want to talk about that. I, but I think you mentioned something that's very interesting that I think people don't always kind of recognize or realize is like you said, you, you shared it with your manager. It's part of the review process of like, Hey, this is something that I'm, I'm thinking about interested in. Uh, because I think sometimes people don't realize the value of articulating what they're thinking about or their goals, yeah. right? Like if you never said that they might've never been as proactive. Same thing of like when I was in Cincinnati at PNG, I told my management, I was like, I would eventually like to move to a bigger city just to experience that. And I didn't think anything was necessarily going to come up from that moment. But then a role opened up in New York and they're like, hey, I know you had said that thing. I don't know if this is going to happen, but here's this thing that and so there's something about that articulating it and letting people know kind of what you're you're after that seems to maybe lead to potential opportunities. Yeah, that's a great point, Drew. And your example is a, a really good one. And I think all of us in our careers, uh, hopefully we have the courage to declare some of those things. And, and it, you, I think one of those experiences and advice I certainly would give any younger, uh, you know, professional is that you do have to communicate your goals to your manager. And, and, and so they know what you want to accomplish and, and what your growth uh, goals are from a career standpoint. Because if you don't communicate it, it's going to be hard for them to guess it or read your mind. And of course, you don't want to communicate impossible, you know, requests and things like that. But uh, it, it is important because uh, that part of the uh, the two-way communication between the employee and the manager can make a huge difference in, in anyone's career. And now, a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to alumni entrepreneur Amit Macker, co-founder of Peanut Butter and Imagination, an independent creative agency that actually solves business problems with ideas that inspire action. So Amit, it seems like now more than ever, brands are ROI obsessed. As one former brand guy to the next, how does a small creative shop like yours even solve for this without sacrificing creative quality? Well, first things first, Roman, the AOR marriage that we once knew, it's no longer. We're shifting towards a project-only world now. And in this new world, you can date many different agencies. And what's attractive to date? Some of the new, smaller, agile agencies. Look, as a former client, I was initially really skeptical of the small agencies. Why are they small? Why are they cheap? So on and so forth. But then I started working them for scrappier brands or projects and started seeing a real value. And that's the key word, value. I had to reframe the hyphenated words of low cost to high value and then the unlock of what I needed for my brands and ultimately my desired agency model that I wanted to build all came to life and done right, smaller can equate to faster, agile, high value and dare I say fun and human ROI also matters. So let's reframe our minds. Brands, you are in control to get high value. The agency marketplace is starting to adapt to your needs. But with this comes responsibility on the marketer's end in order to find the right partner, not transactional vendor. So how do brands thread the needle to make sure they're still getting great value? Well, it sounds basic. Understand the full suite of capabilities you need for an upcoming project and assess whether the partner you're vetting can actually deliver. Most likely, your project will need some strategy, creative, and production. Now, strategy and creative typically fall under one roof. But more often than not, production's farmed out. And when you start farming things out, you're increasing time and money. Get a sense for who the actual team that's going to be working on your project will be. In the new agency world, there's a healthy mix of full-time and freelance folks working on a given project. And the great thing about the freelance economy that we live in is that agencies get to curate creative teams against the right brief. 
And building on the above, understand what the potential partner truly does in-house versus outsources. If they do outsource some capabilities, make sure you feel really comfortable with who the additional vendors are. There are many storefronts that claim they do it all, but outsource a lot of the work. And again, time, money, and now quality control come into play. So that seems like a pretty tall order for any shop. How, how do you guys solve for this? When I founded Peanut Butter and Imagination, I wanted to take into account everything I just described and build the agency model that I also wanted as a client. We have strategy, creative, and production, and so much more under one roof, helping us deliver against higher value and agility. We work with an amazing mix of in-house and freelance creatives, so we can resource all projects based on a true skill set, not bandwidth of available individual X. And we're incredibly self-aware. We know what capabilities we can absolutely knock out of the park. And for any projects that fall outside of that, we've got a great set of partners who share the same values and business model that we can transparently partner with. I firmly believe the value sum of many small ships is far greater than the big sinking AOR ship. What brands are working with you? It's been really fun, Raman. In our short, just over two years of existence, we work with Crayola. We handle all of their experiential and tentpole activations. We work with Domino's, where we do all of their U.S. Hispanic AOR work by project, and the same for Canada. And with Kind Snacks, we've worked on strategy, creative through production. And having worked on big brands and challenger brands alike, we love working with the upstart brands, helping them tap into our CPG experience and hit the ground running. Well, that's awesome, Amit. How can folks find out more about Peanut Butter and Imagination? You can check us out at pbni.shop where you can learn a little bit more about who we are and what work we've done. But more importantly, reach out to us and talk to us about why you're even considering writing a brief. That's where our expertise can really shine and we can shed some light on what's the right agency model that we might be able to curate for you. Awesome, Amit. Thanks so much and best of luck. I appreciate it, Raman. And now back to the show. You know, this podcast is for PNG alumni, but also other people who are uh, at these stages as well. For the PNG uh, alumni specific, if you're part of the network, there's a fantastic webinar that Andy did uh, specifically around the value of global experiences. And so you're just talking about kind of your experience in, in China. Can you speak to a little bit just of like why you think it's it's so valuable to gain some of that insight from a global experience? Yeah, I think all of us, you know, I think many of us each get this when we travel. When you travel to a different place, you usually experience a culture, even if it's a different part of the country or, or particularly another culture. And you, you get that insight that, wow, not everyone does things the same way as what I'm used to or what I grew up. Uh, and living in a different country amplifies that. And you, you get that life perspective that you wouldn't have gotten if you stayed, you know, in the same place the whole time. And you also get a work perspective. And I think on both of those, we definitely uh, i think grew a lot and learned a lot in china we we got to on the on the life balance and, and personal side we got to travel to different parts of asia that we would never have dreamed of doing as a family and our kids got to go to school with uh, at an international school and meet we met met other kids and families that were amazingly well-rounded and coming from different backgrounds and and i think that is something you'll never uh, in your life experience and, and typically in, unless you live you know, overseas. And then on the work side, for me, I learned a lot working in a different culture. And even though it was the same company I'd worked in already, Nike, in China, the culture is still different. And even though the brand is the same and many of the values we share are different, how people operate and how they look at the boss-employee relationship, I learned a lot and actually I had a number of lessons around how to how to change your work style as a leader because of the you know, the team around you or the culture around you, because you can't, you have to adapt to where you are. If you try to do the exact same thing to every audience or every uh, different situation, it won't work. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, one of the things I know you've talked about is, and it maybe it comes from those experiences, is the idea of one, certainly adapting to the people and also embracing change. But I guess, you know, so embracing change is one of the things like, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. How do you actually do that? What does it mean to embrace change when you're working with your people? How do you, especially with everything going on, even kind of currently, how do you help them to embrace change and what does it mean? Yeah, you have to, you know, it starts with a mindset, you know, and I, I, I personally have, you know, over the years, I've kind of put together my sort of leadership purpose and principles. And one of those principles is that there's always more to learn. And, um, you have to also, another one of those I talk about is embracing the power of teamwork and diversity. And you have to, if, if, you, if you challenge yourself 
in areas of like always learning and adapting, then you realize you to, in order to learn and adapt, you have to get help from others around you. It can be your management chain or, you know, former bosses or mentors, or it can just be the, the people that are on your teams already, your teammates. You, ha- you can learn a lot both horizontally or from people that are, you know, not even, uh, on your team. And so I think you listen as a leader and when you listen and you hear ideas about what you can do better, what the teams can do better or what the challenges are, uh, then you can adapt that back into your work priorities and think about how do you adjust to make sure you're best serving both the business and the teams. And that constant feedback is, is something you have to challenge yourself to do. It's, I think it, it gets easier as you get more senior in a, in a role or an organization to think you have the answers or that you should be able to come up with the answers on your own. But in reality, with hopefully the experience, what experience teaches you is that you need even more help and more resources to, to, to get to the right solution. And while your experience definitely can help with certain situations that you repeat, um, you, you also need the, the input of others to grow in and learn. And I think I, I would definitely call that out as something that I, I try to challenge myself to do. Yeah, it seems so like, I would imagine it's hard, like, as you're like, ah, but I have experience in this, like, can I, because don't, don't you want to be like, it sounds like, I don't know, you want to be the smart one. You want to be the like, <laughs> I've got the solution for something versus like the listening one. But I guess that's the difference between someone just, you know, spouting things out versus being a leader kind of in that sense. And I know, so one of the aspects that comes with change, though, is messing up or making mistakes. So is that, you know, something that you have to like learn from, have there been failures that you've, of things that haven't quite worked out, but that they've, they've shaped you in some way or that you've learned some type of lesson? Like how have you adapted to those when things doesn't, when things don't go exactly as according to plan? Yeah. One of the lessons I learned was actually in, in working in Shanghai and China in that time period, I, I was taking my Western sort of leadership management style and trying to just run it kind of the same offense, so to speak, in China. And I started getting feedback from some of my uh, team members that said, there was like, hey, you're not being direct enough. You need to be more like tough or more, uh, I mean, in a, in a word, they were tra- translating it to like mean, you know, or, or you can't be either so nice or not um, directive. And then I had to step back and think, yes, the, the culture of China is different than the US. And, you know, I, I probably needed to, to think, wow, that, you know, maybe they don't want me to just, you know, lay out six options and let them figure it out. They, they need me to tell them this is actually my preferred path or in, in the right situations, be more directive to say, this is what we need to do to get it done. Uh, and while, while I think that doesn't translate to swinging the pendulum and becoming something suddenly an overbearing, you know, you will do everything I say, boss. I think I did learn that lesson because I had to take that feedback and think, wow, I, okay, I need to adapt my style because I'm clearly not being directive enough. And therefore the teams are struggling or they're, they're spinning because they don't feel like their leader has given them a clear, um, I think path. And so then I learned that and I, 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 I believe I got better over my time there. I don't think I maybe was a hundred percent perfect, but I actually, the ironic, the interesting thing is now in my new role back in the Portland, I I've also tried to figure out how do I take what I learned from that experience? Because what I realized is I, in general, I was probably not directive enough as a leader in certain circumstances. It just maybe didn't come out in the Western world as, uh, as much of an issue or maybe not, uh, come out, you know, because people didn't to give me that feedback directly, but the people in China were super honest and they would just come to me and tell me when it wasn't working. <laughs> it would just say like, uh, no, that's not good. You need to, you need to tell us what to do. And I don't think they would have done that in the West coast office of Portland. And so, uh, I learned from that. And hopefully as I adapt back to my time, you know, back in the U.S., I realize that that learning will help me not just in China, but everywhere else I go. Yeah, I think that's a great recognition, right? You're talking about this, you evolving as a leader and bringing what you learned before as opposed to, well, well, I learned this new style in China. And so then when I leave China, I'm going to go back to the way I was doing things before. But it's like, no, how do I build off of what was brought into it? And and so it sounds like, you know, the between your leadership principles and things like that, that you have you know, been very conscious about how you are leading. If you think about, you know, your teams, what are, what are the things that you hope that you feel like they either have, or what are the things they hope that you hope that they learn from you? Like if there is a like, oh, that team um, was, was led by Andy, that means what? Like what's, what's a lasting impact of, of your leadership style and the people that you've been 
and, and, you know, and leadership with. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the other principles I, I have is it's not, it's not unique to me at all. In fact, most, many, many of the leaders talk about servant leadership. And I think the challenge is how do you bring that to life in your team and how, how are you serving them? Because when you serve them and you let them reach the best of their potential, your results as a leader are going to be that much better. And I hope that my teams, you know, see that, you know, through the work that I do to try to, you know, lead and, and, and drive a business that they, they see a combination of like my, my prioritization to help them and their teams empower them to do the best work that they can. And if I, if I can do that and motivate them and give them sort of those clear paths that will let them deliver, hopefully, you know, the work that they the reach their true potential or their full potential in the role. I think the other part of, I don't, I, I don't actually, I, sh- I haven't called this out necessarily in some of my principles is I, I think it's important to always try to step back and not take things a hundred percent seriously, have a little bit of fun al- along the way, because, you know, we spend so much time in our jobs. And, and when you work for great companies, whether P&G or Nike, you can be proud of the brands you work for, and you can also find ways to have fun with your teams. And I would hope that, you know, the teams that I help to lead also see that, you know, while we're definitely serious about delivering the work results and, you know, we're, we're, we're here to serve the teams, we also can along the way try to have a little bit of fun and enjoy each other's company. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit biased considering that's what we focus on, but of, of course I, I am in complete kind of agreement with that. And to your point, like, I think, I think the studies is like uh, the average person will work 90,000 hours in their lifetime. And it's like, wow. all right, 90,000 hours. That's a lot of <laughs> time. But you might as well be enjoying that. You got to find ways to have fun and enjoy that. So speaking of kind of fun and enjoyment, we do have a rapid fire round as we start to wrap up a little bit. So I have a couple of just kind of short answer questions for you that I'm curious just to get to know you a little bit better. So uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Ohio State and sports a little bit earlier, but what, what sport do you enjoy watching the most? I definitely enjoy watching um, college football the most, while rooting for the Buckeyes. Yes, it's been a pretty solid couple of years for us. Hopefully, uh, another good year uh, coming up. Uh, we'll see what, what happens this year. Uh, kind of a sad uh, loss this past year, but they're Tough a great one. team yeah, to, yeah. to watch yeah. for sure. Um, what's your d- go-to way of kind of decompressing, sash, escaping? TVs, movies, books, something else? I would say two two things. I, I love music. I played guitar uh, since high school, and I actually played in a cover band and then that band turned into an originals band when i was in cincinnati and uh actually they were all png uh or most of them were png uh fellow employees and i i loved i love music so that's a great i think outlet for me creativity both on that side and also you know it actually really relieves stress and then i'd say the the second thing is i'm a bit of a sci-fi geek and so whether it's watching like the latest Star Trek show, which I'm, I'm currently streaming on CBS All Access or reading different sci-fi books. I kind of love uh, sort of movies, books, and things like that that kind of help you escape the reality of <laughs> day-to-day <laughs> life, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that music says, so do you play, you still play now and this, with, with family and everything being home? Do they get to, to take in Andy concerts at home? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I do try to, I'm playing more often now that we're uh, working from home in this COVID-19 situation. And it, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's great to have that outlet. And my, my kids, my wife actually played piano. My kids have learned different instruments. And, and when they were in Shanghai, China, they actually played in like kid, kid rock bands. And so they're, I hope that they, keep and maintain the music. And definitely we all enjoy that. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and uh, just out of quick curiosity is, is the new Star Trek worth watching? I haven't, I haven't seen any of it. So I'm watching the uh, uh, Star Trek discovery right now. And okay. it's actually, I really enjoy it. I, I haven't gotten to Picard yet, but okay. I loved the next generation. That was kind of the one I watched the most because I was a little bit too young to, to get into the original Star Trek perhaps. But, uh, uh, I think, um, really enjoying the discovery. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And so, uh, to, uh, that's good to know. I'm going to have to check it out to, to wrap up as we, you know, think about, uh, and I think this is a great question for you as well, thinking about how thoughtful you are with leadership and your approach. If you could leave, you know, the next generation with one piece of advice or one challenge that you would give them, what would it be? Yeah. It's something that I've heard in different ways from other leaders. And, and I would say, you know, everyone for each of you find your own authentic style of how you lead and how you work with other people and and make sure that it is authentic to you because if you try to copycat 
another leader or another person. It may not show up in the way that you know people think is real. And and each of us has our own unique style. And that's actually one of the things, uh, one of the parts, uh, one of my my purposes I've, I've written is like is to I want to use my personal talents and leadership to drive positive change and show there's more than one way to lead effectively. And I added the show there is more than one way to lead effectively in my purpose in the recent years because as I kind of elevated farther in my career, I realized that there is typically often a style of leadership that people expect at each different company. And, you know, P&G had a certain style and Nike certainly does, but you, you can succeed with different leadership styles and not have to become just like that other leader. I mean, you can learn from the best of those leaders, but find your own style. So I hope that I guess is the one piece of advice, find your own authentic leadership style and then be courageous, courageous, be courageous to embrace that as a, you know, path going forwards. Yeah. I love that. You know, that it's not, it's not try to become Andy Shi as a leader or become Steve Jobs as a leader, but to find that right. authentic style yourself. Well, Andy, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the, the time to share your experiences, your insights, your thought process around these uh, different things for uh, the PNG alumni podcast and the, the learnings from leaders uh, listeners as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Drew. I appreciate you guys putting this together to help out the, the teams and community out there. It's a, it's a great effort. So uh, it was a pleasure to talk today. Yeah, absolutely. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. And the reality was at Proctor, I was running the second most profitable business at the company. I probably wasn't going to be CEO. I had been in the job for six years. They probably would have let me do it for another couple of years. And, and it's like, you know, I'm not ready to retire. I've got a lot left in me. And so it was a combination of the brand and the circumstances, the turnaround and the opportunity to, to leave a legacy, to make a mark. You know, this is one of, one of America's oldest companies. I, it, you know, Proctor's now been around for almost 190 years. Levi Strauss has been around for 167 years. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.